Hey, everyone. So I have a request. If you value this show, if you value the stories, the lessons, the wisdom and inspiration we bring to you, if you think of me as your friend, which I am, because even though millions of you are listening, I'm actually talking just to you right now. I need you to be there for me as well. And you can do that by supporting what I do and buying my book, How I Built This. It is just out now and available everywhere. And it doesn't cost more than a few cups of coffee. And it's filled with wisdom and stories and ideas that will have you feeling inspired and fired up to take on the world. So please, if you love this show and what we do for you, do us one back and pick up How I Built This wherever books are sold. There were days in the summer that we were making 1500 bucks in a market. Wow. It surprised us and it surprised the farmer's market people. But first of all, you couldn't walk through the market and not taste our kombucha. We would make sure that everybody who walked by our booth got a sample. How'd you do that? <laughs> hey, you! <laughs> you want to try some probiotic tea? From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, how an unlikely idea for a product to fight hair loss led to today's fastest-growing brand of kombucha called HealthAid. One of the questions we get all the time from aspiring entrepreneurs is, how do I turn my promising side hustle into my main gig? Because for everyone out there who's making something in their garage or kitchen and maybe selling it on eBay or at a local flea market, or really anyone who's working on a business idea part-time, that moment where you decide to make the side hustle your full-time job can be daunting and scary, especially if you're walking away from a stable career with a salary and benefits. Now, of course, there's no one simple answer to the question of when to do this. It often comes down to an overwhelming feeling that what you've started to build is actually the thing you want to do with the rest of your life. The feeling Nancy Twine had when, after three years of working on her side hustle, she quit her job on Wall Street to go full-time with her hair care products company, Briogeo. And the feeling Sal Khan had when, after years of making YouTube tutorials, he realized Khan Academy was what he wanted to pursue full-time. And today's story follows a similar pattern. In 2012, Dinah Trout, her husband Justin, and her best friend Vanessa launched a side hustle selling homemade kombucha at a farmer's market in Los Angeles. They had very little experience and almost no money. But less than a year after that, as you'll hear, they were facing that transition moment. And Dinah decided to go all in on kombucha. Now, over the past 25 years, kombucha has become a huge category in the beverage sector. In fact, in 2020, the market for kombucha in the U.S. is expected to be close to $2 billion. But at the beginning, Dinah Trout really had no idea where kombucha was headed. She started making it for fun as a graduate student. 
At the time, Dinah was living in Boston and working toward a PhD in biochemistry. And she says that if you ask any of her roommates in graduate school what they remember about living with her, they would probably all agree it was the food. Oh, man, I made the best dinners. I mean, I got into some serious credit card debt in in grad school. (laughs) Let me tell you, because I would invite everybody over neighbors, friends, friends of friends would come over and I would make something spectacular. Paella, like 24-hour paella and, you know, every kind of fish under the sun we would find and, you know, build salt rocks and then put that in the smoker for, I mean, it was just really um, beautiful, real, whole food cooking and and lots of wine. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. And and I got into, you know, I wasn't really afraid to get advanced. So that's how I started getting into like sprouting things and um, fermenting things. So yeah, kombucha, kimchi, sauerkraut, kefir. These were all things I played with. So you, uh, you end up earning a master's degree in nutritional biochemistry and also a master's in public health. But, uh, but I guess like you eventually decided not to pursue a, a PhD. <laughs> Yeah. So you're so you've got these degrees. It's 2007 and you're living in Boston or the Boston area. And I guess at the time you were um you were dating somebody who's now your husband, Justin, is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah. And and tell me about what did you guys I guess decide to relocate to the West Coast? Yeah. Why did you want to leave the East Coast and go to I mean, I can understand that. I live in California, but <laughs> why would you why did you decide to do that? Yeah, I mean, three reasons. The weather the produce, and the music. Mm. So Justin was a musician. So the decision for us as a couple was, are we going to go to New York or LA? It was a tough call, but we just, I think it had been a particularly brutal winter too. It was Mm. like, we just wanted to move to California. And I didn't know what I was going to do yet, but I figured I could figure it out when I got there. Uh, So you're in LA, you moved to LA, and I'm assuming you start to look for a job or you start to look for a job before you move? Well, I was looking, I was very open-minded and also practical in the sense that I understood I had, you know, an undergraduate degree to pay for and two graduate (laughs) degrees to pay for. So I was really looking for what would pay me and what could use my skill sets. And I got recruited actually by a pharmaceutical company, which is pretty funny because if you knew me back then, you know, you couldn't even convince me to take an Advil then. So it was pretty funny that I ended up taking a job with the second largest pharmaceutical company in the world. Which is? GlaxoSmithKline. And and based in L.A. Based in L.A. And that's where I found myself for five years. That really was my only job. I mean, that was my only real job besides the stuff I did extra just to, you know, buy my beers in college. Yeah. So you are, uh, you become like an employee of GlaxoSmithKline. And, um, mm-hmm. and I guess on, on like the first day or in the first week, you get paired up with somebody who would factor into your life later, and this is Vanessa Dew. Vanessa Dew. And both of you were like young sales agents at that point, sales reps? That's right, yeah. And and how were they? How were you guys paired up? So first day, not first week, first day. She. Uh, so they make you do a ride-along your first day. So they paired us together, and we became fast friends. And funny thing happened I just have to share with you that day because she had broken up with her uh, boyfriend the night before and so it wasn't a great day for her and so when she picked me up I could see she had like mascara under her eyes from tears and I and I'm particularly good with people you know that have just been through something and so we had just a really good day and I think it wouldn't have been such a great day had that not happened so a little bit serendipitous on many fronts so when you um 
when you started working there, was it, did you enjoy it? Was it, I mean, what did you like about sales? Um, I don't know if I really enjoyed it. Hmm. I loved being with people and connecting with people. So, yeah, I did really well. I, I think the first year I was like probably one of the top, I think me and Vanessa, we won the, the team won the top award for the year. And it was like that the whole time we were there. What was your um, ambition at that point? Did you think, you know, I'm, I'm kind of kicking butt here at GlaxoSmithKline. Maybe, maybe I'll be an executive here one day. Yeah, for sure. I always had that grandiose fantasy, I guess you could call it. And, and it was, it's only a fantasy because, you know, there were 100,000 employees at GSK. But that, that's absolutely where I was focused at that point on being a manager next and then moving from management up to you know, more executive leadership and so on and so forth. So it was like I had my vision to get to the top. I guess a few years in, you are exceeding expectations on sales mm-hmm. goals. And they give you this this chance, I guess, for a year to sort of step away from the sales side and be what they call a change agent. What What mm-hmm. is it? What, what did they let you do? So the context of that time is important here. Pharmaceutical companies were all in a transition state because uh, generic medicines were starting to really come out. Yeah, yeah. And there was just a lot of change, a lot of attrition, layoffs every three, four months. Productivity went down. Engagement went down. Morale went down. It was like a, a real turning point. And one of the things they came up with was get your 10, 20 best people and get them to help you bring productivity back and engagement back. And so they called them change agents. And I was fortunate to be one of them. And I accepted because I really didn't know what was ahead, but I felt that it was an opportunity for me to continue to move up. So what would you do? You would travel around? Yes, it was really, really cool and also unstructured. And it, and this is why it was an important moment for me. And what I chose to do with that was I went and met with every single team for a week. Hmm. And I spent time riding along with each individual. I spent time with the manager. I spent time with each team. And I just talked to them. You were an internal consultant, basically. I mean, A little bit, yeah. And then what happens? It, it ends and they, they're like, okay, go back to your job in sales. Basically. And you were like, this is what I'm assuming. You get back to your sales job and you're like, I'm back to what I was doing before that. Yeah. Um, I had all this autonomy and no structure and I could just do whatever I wanted. And I was good at that. Mm. Like I loved that. And then pharma sales is so much rules, so much structure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was not happy. So you get back and you are feeling uninspired and unfulfilled. Did a part of you think maybe I should find another job? No, it it was I want to say it was clear, but it wasn't really clear. Maybe a better word is it was loud. (laughs) There was um, uh, definitely a calling, I guess you could say, that I needed to start something. And and where did that come from? I mean, you hadn't done any any entrepreneurial stuff up until that. I mean, you hadn't been on that track, right? You hadn't been thinking about that. So was it, did it come from someone else? It came from that change agent experience Hmm. I think it may not sound very entrepreneurial, but in fact, it was. I had no, uh, just a very big goal. And so that that sort of built my confidence too, where I said, hey, I'm really good at this sort of like lack of structure thing and taking charge. And I'm also good at getting people on board and like inspiring them. And I I loved that. 
Yeah. I really loved that. I felt a lot of fulfillment from getting people to sort of combine forces and and go. And, and by the way, what was what was Justin doing at this point? Because I mean, he came to LA to be a musician. So what what was he doing while yeah. you were at Glaxo? Yeah, yeah. Good question. Because I think that's another part of what drove the entrepreneurial thing. Um, so Justin was writing songs. We had turned our second bedroom into a songwriter room. He played for a band. And on the side, he worked for an, an entrepreneur, a very, very successful entrepreneur. What did he do for him? Justin sort of, I guess you could say his job was in marketing, but he really was a little bit of like an assistant. Yeah. And he would talk about this entrepreneur and just how successful he was in the life that he lived. So that also, I think, drove my desires because I think we started to say, well, imagine what we could do. So did you, I mean, so you're still at Glaxo and you're still working there, but did you, did you start to kind of brainstorm with, with Justin and, and I guess also with Vanessa, your closest friend at, at Glaxo, did you guys sort of start to talk about, hey, what, what could we do? Yeah. You just sit around and kind of throw ideas out? Well, it was more structured than that. The beginning was um, more of an emotional journey. Like I think the three of us had to accept that this is what we wanted first. And then we were like, what are we going to do? As soon as we got to the place of knowing we wanted to do this, immediately every Saturday we were having entrepreneur club meetings. So it wasn't just sitting around. They were structured. Like you had to all come with ideas or? Yes. Yes. So the idea was in the week, you were supposed to have a notebook with you. And at any point during the week, if you had a pain, a struggle mm-hmm. at all, you had to write it down. Yep. That was what we gathered around. Yeah. So we had all kinds of ideas. Like what? Like, um, okay, so they ran the gamut. So parking was a pain in the ass. Um, so the idea for an app that would, you know, solve for looking around for parking in downtown LA. Um, Vanessa would come in and say, I remember one of the ideas she brought up was her high boots. She has these like knee high boots and they would slouch. They would fall when she would walk. What could we create that would hold those boots up? Um, yeah, I mean, really all over the place. (laughs) So if we liked the idea, like the three of us would look at it and brainstorm solutions. And we thought that there was one that had legs, we would move it to the next phase, right. which would mean somebody would take it on and do a little research. What's What does the competition look like out there? How much would it cost to, you know, just sort of initial broad stroke stuff. Yeah. And most of the stuff would get crossed off the list because we just didn't have any significant money. And we had gone through several weeks of this process in the Entrepreneur Club, maybe even a couple months. And by the way, Vanessa and I did start one in there. You started um, a business. We did. We did. Well, oh, what, what'd I you start? Say, I wouldn't say we actually started a business. We made business cards. Um, we felt that parties could be better if they had like a theme hmm. uh, and that we have themes for birthday parties as kids. Yeah. Um, why don't we have theme parties more and easy theme parties for adults? Hmm. And then eventually this could turn into a really great business where we would sell kits. Like that yeah. was sort of the thought. And so we called it thematics. So like if the party, if it was like the the theme was the Flintstones, you would go decorate a house like the Flintstones. Yeah. Okay. So we made business cards. We even went and sold a a party to a record studio in Hollywood. Wow. And it was, uh, it was Halloween and I don't remember, um, which is really sad. We never ended up doing it. That's why I don't remember. Um, we sold it in and they were excited to do it. And then like, it just sort of puttered out. 
they ended up canceling the party for a reason unrelated to the uh, the theme. Right. It was like they they were cutting budgets or something, and they decided not to do a Halloween party this year. Right. So there was a bit of frustration, you know, in the group, and we were going to get another party going. And Justin basically came into one of the meetings and said, "Guys, I feel like." what you're talking about is just is going to be a lot of work. I'm not particularly interested in that. I mean, the three of us really were broke. <laughs> um, by the way, and you're still both of you are still working at GlaxoSmithKline at this point. You're still yes. because you need the, the income. Oh, yes. All right. So you guys are having these entrepreneurial meetings. And I guess that the problem you decided to settle on was because Justin raised this problem. What was the problem he had and what what was the idea? Um, the problem was hair loss. Okay. Um, so his entrepreneur, the, the one that he was working for, he became successful by selling a product that basically solved for hair loss. And so Justin would see how far people would go, consumers would go to protect the hair on their head. And so he came in saying, guys, we could make something here. I think he had recently gone to represent that company at a trade show or something, and he just saw the incredible opportunity. So he brought that to the table. So he's thinking, we got to get into hair loss because this is a big deal. It's a huge industry and there's room to kind of enter that market. Yeah. And and so what did you guys, I mean, where did you start? So Justin, Vanessa, and I started researching what would regrow hair. And yeah, the idea was we'd create some kind of product that worked though. That was the goal. This is a bold swing. This is like a big swing for the fences (laughs) because for at least... 2,000 years, humans have tried to answer that question. And it's pretty bold that the three of you are like, we can figure this out. I mean, I love that. Yeah. So I was particularly interested in finding a natural substance. Got it. And so I was sort of researching, what could you eat? What vitamins would you need? And, and just started researching that. That was my angle. And when I came back the following week, I had reported that basically I found all this anecdotal evidence, like all these people all over the world just talking about using a kombucha scoby on their head to regrow well, hair. Well, let's just pause for a sec. Okay. <laughs> I make kombucha, so I know what you're talking about. But in kombucha, there is a large, galopy, um, sort of pale mushroom kind of thing that sits on top of the kombucha called a scoby. It's an acronym. Yeah. What does it stand for? Symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. SCOBY. It is a, a like a mushroom kind of thing that just eats up the it's sugar. It's a fungus. It's a fungus, mm-hmm. and that's what makes the kombucha. That's what ferments the kombucha and helps make it sour. So you read that the <laughs> that the kombucha <laughs> SCOBY. It what if you stick it on your head, it promotes hair growth. That's right. Wow. And I wasn't just seeing that once. I was seeing that in a lot of places. What? Yeah. People talking about taking that SCOBY, mixing it with something, or just putting it straight on the head as a mask. Um, But what I really thought was, I know how to make kombucha. (laughs) And therefore, I know how to make SCOBY so we could try this thing. Yeah. So you thought, all right, let's try this out. Because you you couldn't – I mean, you knew this from working at a big pharmaceutical company that there's something called the FDA. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't just put out a product and say, this will stimulate your hair growth uh, made out of a scoby. (laughs) So, yes, and I did know all of that. And for this to work, I knew we would have to prove it. Right. So because Justin was thinning, we're like, okay, here's our guinea pig. Let's start with a sample of one and, um, and see if this stuff really works. 
So I just had to make kombucha, and I just had to make a lot of it. Because yep. each time you make a kombucha, as you know, Guy, um, you make a scoby, right? And, and you were going to test this out. And, and what were you going to do? Were you going to just directly put it on his head, or were you going to mix it with stuff? So we were going to just put it straight on his head first. Yep. Um, but I think a, our sort of line of sight was that we would eventually mash this up into a really beautiful mask that had like beautiful smells and would have other things in it that would probably be good for hair, like avocado, coconut oil, something like that. That was sort of the goal. But at first we wanted to see the, you know, if with the active ingredient work, AKA the SCOBY. So yeah, but we never actually put one on his head because we got in, there was an intervening happening um, what happened? I mean, you've got this idea. You're going to yeah. try a remedy, a mask <laughs> for hair loss. Oh, yeah. But Vanessa's friend of a friend. I don't know if she actually ran the farmer's market, but she was one of the leading positions at a farmer's market organization in L.A., one of the biggest. Mm -hmm. And she had called us to say, listen, one of the farmers is dipping out for the summer. I'll give you the spot to sell your hair loss product wow. if you want it. So we didn't have the hair loss product yet, but that didn't matter. We said yes. yes we, we said, said we'll yes. <laughs> yeah. And this is in 2012. This is 2012. This has got to be like January of 2012. Got it. Okay. And so you're thinking, we'll take it. And when, when was the spot going to open up? In March. March 26th was the got first it. market, and it was going to be for the summer. So you've got two months or less than two months to get this into the market. Yeah. Are you scrambling to try and make this work? Yeah. So, so I've got like 60 scobies gathered. So I've also got like 60 cases of kombucha in my apartment, which is just like useless to me. It's like byproduct. Even though I made really good kombucha, the goal was to make really good scobies. So like I was just sort of handing that kombucha off to friends. You were just bottling it up and, and leaving it. We were bottling it up in cheap bottles that we got from General Bottle Supply in LA and just Every time a friend would come over, I would just give them a case. And I remember the week after the lady, we said yes. Um, the following weekend was when we got together and we're like, okay, let's bring all the ingredients together that we've seen online make a difference. And everything was very natural. So we had like avocados, coconut oil, vitamin C, different kinds of food products that had anecdotal evidence around hair growth. And we started messing around, you know, um, and the goal was to, you know, get to a place where we would be able to create a really smooth, beautifully smelling mask that someone would want to put on their head, right? And you would sell that for like 50 bucks a pop at the farmer's market. Like that was kind of what we were we were envisioning. And I think the three of us all thought that was going to be pretty easy. <laughs> and, you know, it took an afternoon for us to realize like this was way, <laughs> formulating a product was going to be way harder. Uh, it was so complicated and the scoby did not blend well and it yeah. was um it was really smelly <laughs> you know like it and Justin kept saying I just don't know how anybody's going to put this on their head <laughs> so once you realize that this is not going to you're not going to be ready in time what did you decide to do well what was originally a byproduct suddenly became the main show you know we saw 60 cases of unlabeled kombucha. And we were like, okay, wait, check. We know this is really good kombucha. Everybody tells us that. Check, we already have it. Check, you know, a lot of checks. Um, and so we said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna sell that. And uh, what did you call it? Did you have a name for it? Yeah, it was called Health Aid. How did that happen so quickly? It happened in about a two-hour meeting around a circular table, the same table we started the Entrepreneur Club at. And... Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of pressure for this drink. I want to just say, when we decided to sell the kombucha, 
we hadn't given up yet on the hair loss idea. We just kind of realized it was going to be harder to make than we could make in the time that yeah. we needed to make it by. So it was like we still thought the big idea was hair loss. And so there wasn't a lot of pressure to make all the right moves with this kombucha. We each had different things we were working on. For me, it was create an awesome package. I had stayed at a friend's house in New York City and I loved she had this like apothecary setup of like old medicine bottles and mm -hmm. stuff just like decoration. And I just loved that look and feel. Yeah, um, and right. so I took a picture and I drew something on a piece of paper that said, you know, bubbly probiotic tea and kombucha. Um, and then I took that sketch and sent it to a friend who was Justin's musician friend, but also happened to be a graphic designer and, you know, gave him 50 bucks and a case of kombucha. Wow. And he came up with a really awesome label for us that we printed on our jet printer and scotch taped on the bottle. <laughs> so you've got the labels and you label them yeah. on and you guys just what, pack that up in a, yep. in a in a car and you drive to the farmer's market. Did you get like a one of those like white tents? Yep. What'd you do? You had like a sign? Oh, it was way more than that. I mean, I took this very seriously. It was like everything had to match. It was, I felt that the whole theme of the booth had to be apothecary. So our sort of thought was it was going to be a little bit like Come one, come all, experience the elixir of life. You know, mm. like that was sort of going to be the theme and it would draw people in the market. It would almost be, we thought maybe we could make our farmer's market like a show. And, and so what happened? Did you start like getting customers buying it right away? Oh, yeah. Wow. I remember the first purchase, the first guy who, who came. Who, who was it? Just some dude. I think yeah. his name was Mark, but he showed up. And we like asked a couple questions, took a sample, and me and Justin were like sitting there, you know, yeah, you know, looking at this guy, like, is yeah. he gonna buy one? And he asked for two, two bottles, two bottles, ten dollars, baby, a five dollars we like, a bottle. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, at the time, yeah. actually, that was sort of what they were going at in sure. the store too. They were like four fifty or something at the and, store. And and how many bottles did you sell that day? All of them. Wow, you sold them out. We sold them out in like a couple hours. Wow. It surprised us and it surprised the farmer's market people. They were like, what the, where'd this team come from? And, and, and what frustrated us is we sold out, I want to say by like 11 a.m. And the market didn't close till two. So we could have made a lot more. So the following week, um, you know, we could only do so much because kombucha takes a good week to make. But, sure. you know, two weeks after that, we showed up with a lot more. And there were days in the summer um, that we were making... 1500 bucks in a market. Wow. And and by the way, where were you living? Where were you and, and your and Justin living at this point? So we had this great apartment off Sierra Benita Boulevard in LA, right near the Grove. And where were you brewing the kombucha? In our closet. Wait. So because you so you so <laughs> Well, that's where it was fermenting, but of course we used our kitchen for, you know, making the tea and Yeah. Yeah. Were you making yeah. it in gallon jars? We were making it in the same jars we make it today, two and a half gallon cookie jars from Bed Bath & Beyond. Hmm. And that apartment just happened to have a huge closet with a bunch of shelves. And we put in stainless steel shelves to add to that. You know, you could fit 10 jars per shelf. And we probably had a good 20 or 30 shelves. Um, wow. So we could make a, a lot of kombucha. And, yeah. and then we, we bought, I mean, I'm not sure if this is electrically safe, but we bought one of those um, space heaters. Mm -hmm. And just sort of put it in the closet. So it warmed up the room to make the fermentation go a bit faster. All right. So you got all this kombucha going and then you spend the summer just... Slinging kombucha. Basically slinging kombucha. But during the week, you were still working. You were still selling yeah, farmers. But it was, it was hard, man. Like 
so yes, in the week I was working and at night be just working so hard at making the kombucha, making more kombucha. At the height of the summer, we were in seven markets and there were only three of us. So You were in seven farmer's markets. Yeah. And by the way, how are you – I mean, this is not just on the weekends, right? You had to do weekday markets, but you and Vanessa had weekday jobs. So what did you do? And so did Justin. Yeah. I mean, we didn't do the weekday markets at first. We did weekend markets, but then we did pick up a Thursday market, but we hired somebody to do that. Hmm. So he would do it for 100 100 bucks and a percentage of sales. And so that's how we were doing the seven, of course. Three of us, each of us would do a market, and then we had four people. All right. So you are, sounds, I'm assuming you're getting repeat customers, people coming back to your stall at the farmer's market and saying, I bought this stuff last week. This is great. I want a few more bottles. Yes. At least half of our customers were repeat. And then the other half were new, which was so cool. We were really driving people to the category, people who uh, were new to kombucha, and we would, First of all, you couldn't walk through the market and not taste our kombucha. We would make sure that everybody who walked by our booth got a sample. Um, it was just how'd you do that? <laughs> hey, you, <laughs> you with the kid, <laughs> you want to try some probiotic tea? And who were your customers? Were they like yoga people? Were they like, was it just LA? It's just LA people are kind of health conscious. It's kind of just LA. I mean, for sure, the ones that knew kombucha were probably more like the yoga customer. But I would say a lot of customers that came to us and bought really had never heard of kombucha before. You know, had heard something about probiotics. Yeah. And were just like, well, my doctor told me I should have probiotics. I'll give this a try. Let me buy one. Yeah. And another thing we were doing at that time, pretty quickly customers who loved it would say, will you just bring this to my house? Like, I don't want to carry a case around the farmer's market. Will you just deliver? If I buy a whole case, will you deliver it to my house? And we're like, yeah. So then this whole other business started, which was us distributing cases to homes all throughout LA after the market. So like Saturdays and Sundays became extremely busy for us. Now, here's a question. So this is this is very promising. You know, you're selling a lot of kombucha at yeah. farmer's markets, but it's a it's a farmer's market business. Um, did you, you know, did you think, hey, we should take this beyond the farmer's market? Did you think this is going great? This is going to be a great farmer's market business? No, no. We we quickly saw, I want to say it was like June or July when we of had- 2012. When we, yeah, when we had realized this was the business. Wow. To be honest, it was about the consumer to us. Like there was a response. Hmm. They like loved our kombucha. We were getting- they would say things like, I drove 100 miles to buy this kombucha. You know, yeah. it was like that. And we were like, okay, we, we have something here. It felt wrong to go back yeah. to hair loss after that. There was something yeah. here. It was alive and, like, growing. When we come back in just a moment, how Dinah, Justin, and Vanessa started to ramp up production while burning through cash, and how one single week would determine whether HealthAid would survive or die. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Epic Provisions, maker of Epic Bar. Beef was nature's idea. The Epic Bar was their idea. The new beef, sea salt, and pepper bars have three grams total carbs. Why? It's in their nature. After all, they're made with 100% grass-fed beef and nature's macros. Three grams total carbs, a 
11 grams of protein. Find them in the bar aisle or at epicbar.com. Thanks also to Microsoft Teams. Now there are more ways to be a team with Microsoft Teams. Bring everyone together in a virtual room, collaborate live on the same page, and see up to 49 people on screen. Learn more at Microsoft.com Teams. There are these networks of staunchly pro-gun groups on Facebook. And one of them is run by these three brothers, the Door Brothers. But it turns out, they don't just do guns. The Door family name has been attached to other causes. Their goal is to eliminate public education and to replace it with Christian schooling. The roots of the Door family on the No Compromise podcast from NPR. And just one more thing. The How I Built This book is now available. It's a great read and a great gift for anyone looking for ideas, inspiration, wisdom, and encouragement to have the courage to put out an idea into the world. It's filled with a ton of stories you haven't heard and how some of the greatest entrepreneurs you know and respect started out at the very bottom. Check out How I Built This, the book, available wherever you buy your books. And please, if you support what I do on this show, you can show that support by picking up How I Built This, the book. And thanks. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So it's toward the end of 2012, and in less than one year, Dinah and her co-founders have pivoted from selling a hair loss treatment to a business selling kombucha at farmer's markets around L.A. And at this point, they can tell that HealthAid has the potential to become much, much bigger. The problem, though, is time. All three co-founders are still working their day jobs. And they had to decide whether it was time to jump into this side hustle full time. Well, everybody in our families was telling us not to do it. Everyone said, you're nuts. Don't leave that job. Don't don't leave that job. Right. Don't sensible leave it advice. To, to, yes. But I mean, but for you, the decision to quit. I mean, was it just obvious that, that it was time and this this new thing with kombucha was going to take off? No, it was so scary. It was so scary. I was so afraid to call my father and tell him, oh my goodness, I remember that. I was like shaking. What'd you tell him? You know, I, I've made the decision to quit my job and give Health Aid a full-time go. Huh. He was sort of like, come on, you don't have to do that. I mean, listen, I'm supportive of Health Aid. It's going well. You should keep doing it. But like, mm. don't quit your job. You should be making some money first, you know? Yeah. Because it wasn't at that time. I think Justin and I had, had scrounged together enough money to have a couple months of rent saved up. So at the end of the year, we found ourselves in this place of being like, um, it was like our dream. All three of us had the dream to give this thing a go. So we made a sort of pact at November. I want to say it was around Thanksgiving where we said, okay, let's put in our notice end of the year. Boom. We're done. January 3rd. We come back. It's game time, baby. <laughs> that was sort of the, that was the thought. And it really was. As soon as we showed up, I call that one of the most important marquee moments because it was when we came back that we could put our full mind share to this business and growing it. And that's when we moved away from farmer's markets. All right. So you you quit. By the way, you're making all the kombucha in your apartment. You guys are making yeah. it in your apartment. 
Oh, yeah. No, I had like our apartment literally turned into a factory of a, a kombucha, kombucha factory. Did yeah. it smell, by the way, of kombucha? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were like definitely, I mean, neighbors who lived at Sierra Benita with us, thank you, because we, we really, yeah, their lives were worse off because of us. Not only did it smell like kombucha all the time, but we had people coming in to help us make it. I, I mean, any friend that needed, you know, some cash. Sure. Um. But there was a point where our kombucha, you know, just could not fit anymore. And we needed some space. Plus, we started to sell in stores. Like, stores would come to our markets and say, hey, can I sell this in my really awesome, you know, craft cocktail store? Or can I sell this in my, like, high-end market? And so we would deliver not just to individuals, but also to small wholesale accounts. And when we did that, that was when legally, you know, they would say things like, hey, uh, you know, where's your <laughs> nutrition label? <laughs> Where, where's your nutrition label? <laughs> and like, where's your like business location? And we're like, yeah, we can't be like uh, Sierra Bonita apartment A, you know. Right. So um, we found a it was called Cake Bake Shop in Manhattan Beach. And the owner's name was Laura, and she was closed on Sundays and Mondays. And in exchange for us opening on Sundays and Mondays and manning her shop, she let us use all the extra space she had for free. I mean, there's so many, like, really cool strategies here because you didn't really need a lot of money to start up. You didn't have an office, so you just kind of bartered to use the space. Uh-huh. It was a barter. But did you at and get to buy jars, you had to buy bottles— did you at any point go out to people that you knew and say, hey, can we take a loan? Can can you help us out? Did you like do anything like that? Yeah, no, we were so busy, Guy. And we were the type of people that in the walk-in fridge at the bakery shop, when the light was out, we didn't like fix the light. We would just like work in the dark. So yeah, no, I mean, we probably should have been thinking ahead because there's no question that as we got bigger, cash was coming back to us at a later time. And that was starting to really infringe upon our cash um, situation. But we weren't really thinking about that. So no, when we needed money, the first time we really needed money, we needed money to buy our first filling line, which already we were past the cake bake shop stage. Um, it was the next stage, but we asked both of our parents for that. Vanessa asked her dad and I asked my dad and they, they gave us money at like a, you know, um, I don't even think there was an interest rate. It was like pay us back in a year. And how much money did you need to get a filling machine or whatever? 60 grand. So 30 grand each. Right. And that was just for a filling line. That was like gone. It was literally the price of that. And so we were, yeah, we were out of cash fast. And what was the the sort of the division of labor between you and Vanessa and Justin? I mean, you were the chief kombucha brewer, right? <laughs> well, and... yes and no. I mean, I was also the marketer. Okay. In the beginning, it was like anybody who has arms and legs and has like we all shared the chores and the responsibilities. And brewing was the most physically difficult. I mean, it's a lot of lifting cases of liquid, moving cases around, filling bottles. So it was like no one person could do that all week. Um, So we would switch. There was no clear kind of job responsibility yet. But once we quit our job, what we did is we put jobs, individual jobs and responsibilities onto postcards. So we had like 100 postcards, each with a job from, you know, making deliveries to brewing the kombucha to opening accounts. And we put those on a wall and we sat at the back and we just said, okay, go pick up the postcards, the three of us, go pick up the postcards that you, you know, are most drawn to and you think you're the best at. Wow. And naturally, Vanessa picked up the sales ones 
I picked up the marketing and leading people ones. And then Justin picked up a lot of the operational manufacturing ones. So it, it sort of, we very naturally fell into our roles of CEO for me, chief of sales for Vanessa and COO for Justin. And, and when it came time to having that difficult conversation, sometimes difficult, about how to divide up the business, was it difficult or not? Was it just like, yep, a third, a third, a third? How'd you figure that out? It was not difficult. Yeah, we we all are very uh, grateful that the three of us landed with each other because I know a lot of people have founder issues. It's natural, right? You've got yeah. a thing of value. Um, but it, for us, it just really hasn't ever been. The three of us were equally devoted, dedicated, put the same amount of work into health aid. So we were, yeah, a third, a third, a third, all the way and always have been. All right, so you guys start, so you decide, all right, let's get this in stores, right? And how do you, where do you start? Because I guess, uh, did you approach stores with your kombucha? Did you like, yeah, oh, yeah. And, and were they instantly like, yes, we're in? Or, or did you get more pushback? You know, some. You know, we had a sales sheet that like I had, you know, used my, as inspiration for my sales, pharmaceutical sales days. Um, sometimes you you get somebody that was super stoked about it. Um, one of the biggest early on challenges was refrigeration. And this is... We've done this before on the show with like, you know, Honest Tea and other products that some need refrigeration, some don't. It's very hard to get onto refrigerated shelves yes. in stores. Yes. Because there's limited space and everybody wants that space. Yes. It's totally cutthroat. And you're just some three friends making kombucha. Yeah, we're and, kind of a joke. Yeah. Yeah. And but you would, <laughs> what would you do? You would go to these stores and say, hey, can I talk to the manager? And you would have like samples with you? Yeah. A six pack of kombucha is usually what we show up with. And we just, we'd say, you know, try it. And, you know, sometimes we'd be able to put it right in the fridge, right then and there. And um, we, we created a whole self-distribution model for a good two years. We ended up buying a van or, you know, leasing a van, a big white van. It wasn't refrigerated, but we put a bunch of coolers in there. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't as easy to make a wholesale sale. Um, as it was to make like a customer sale in a farmer's market. But it was worth the squeeze because usually the bigger the store, the more cases they would order at a time. But there was a period of time where Vanessa, Justin, and I, we, we would each take a day to deliver during the week, a couple days a week. Um, so we delivered every single day and our days were full. And we would just drive around LA and drop off product to restaurants, cafes, small grocery stores. And they were buying like, what, a couple cases here and there? Yeah, like probably the average delivery was somewhere between two and 10 cases. So I guess you eventually, in 2013, you land a deal with Erewhon, which is a larger market, like an upscale market yeah. in L.A. Yeah, uh, it's like a proper grocery store, but yeah. they only have three of them at that time. Actually, at the time, they only had two. So it was still not a huge chain. Like we could make the deliveries. And with all of the beverage options at a place like Erewhon, already by 2013, that was a pretty crowded space. Uh, not just kombucha, but just beverages, fruit juices, yeah. natural juices, cold press, this press, that press. I mean, you know, it's all. How are you getting people to notice health aid kombucha in the refrigerated case? We just wouldn't let it lose. We would show up and do samples. Right. Justin, Vanessa, and I were doing samplings at least once a day. Hmm. And then you know we did a good job of creating a bit of buzz around the product too. Um, yeah, and I think people liked that we were like a trio, you know, of entrepreneurs that were just getting started. And we we had a really good kombucha. So, you know, hopefully people would tell their friends. I don't know. It just, it really did grow, but but we pushed it very hard. Hmm. I mean, we were always, always selling this thing. Oh, I was always demoing, it felt like. 
and but, but did you have any employees at this point? It was just kind of volunteers or friends or interns or what? We had some people that worked hourly for us in the brewery to help us. And then we also had some independent sales reps that got paid a commission. So let's say we had about 20 of those individuals that were working like some five, six hours a week. So not not a lot. That was how we ran our sales. That was how we were able to grow in accounts. And then on the brewery side, we probably had two or three individuals. Hmm. And were you also using credit cards to pay your bills? Yes. And maxing out on your cards? Every month. All right. So you need to scale up, right? You're getting more demand. So, And clearly, you've got a winning thing here. Could you go to a bank and get a loan? Did you try? Well, I always gave my middle finger at the Wells Fargo, uh, you know, billboard on the 405 because it would be like helping small businesses grow. And I'm like, you didn't help us. Oh, you actually went and asked them for a loan? I mean, everybody said no. Because you had no collateral? No collateral. No. Yeah. No assets as individuals, but also no profitability. It was just like a complete, you know, so you actually went, this business? you met, went and met with a loan officer or loan officer. Yes. Yes. And, and you showed them your, your like business model and everything. Yes. We didn't get good loans from banks until like a couple years ago because our business was a bit like a rocket ship that you know, it was growing like crazy, but we didn't have any sense of where our next dime was going to come from. And uh, except from, you know, selling the kombucha, but like we were going way faster than we, we could keep up with for sure. So I think from a conservative bank perspective, it just was not it was not a safe move until recently. So what do you do? I mean, if you know, either this is a point where, you know, this can be like the trough of sorrow, right? Where, the, where you need a bridge <laughs> loan or you need some money or, or yeah. you're going you're gonna to fizzle out. Right. Yeah, hundred percent. And I remember the moment we were at the brewery, and um, we had a fifty thousand um, dollar credit limit, and we just assumed that Amex would extend our yeah. credit because we were good about paying it in full every month. You know, so we were like, "Oh, it's not going to be a problem." I mean, we've been great customers, you know. And then, uh, yeah, we got a flat no. Um, a flat no to extend your fifty thousand dollars. Yes, like it was like you're maxed out, and you're not getting any more credit from us. So what'd you do? We were pretty scared. We had enough um, to make that week of deliveries. But at that point, we sat down and said, okay, who do we reach out to that has money and that does investments? And we were starting to gather those people. And we got a cold call from a guy by the name of JC. He was a a manager at um, an investment company called First Beverage. So Yeah. um, And he found out about your product maybe by going to Erwan or, or farmer's yep. markets or yeah, okay. Yep. And he called you to what? To say he tried our kombucha and he thought it was the best he's ever had. Wow. And, you know, they really want to talk about an investment. Wow. Now, they had just gone through a very long diligence process with another kombucha company that was bigger than us at the time. And they didn't end up doing the deal for whatever reason. I'm not sure why. But they were convinced about the category. Wow. So it's like they entered our world already sold that they needed to get into a kombucha and fast. And it was like, could this be any more perfect? Like, where do we sign? And they they were able to cut a deal pretty quickly. Within six weeks, we had cash. And they allowed us to include some friends and family as well. So we did like a series A slash friends and family round together. And that was in 2014. And that was our first investment. So... You get this investment. What does it mean? What, what were you? I mean, how, by the way, how much did they invest? Over two million dollars. Wow. So, they, but this enabled you presumably to hire people. 
Yes. So that was exactly what we did with the money. Gotcha. So we did two things with the money. We moved into our uh, the next brewery, which was really, really important because we were in way too small a space um, and couldn't keep up. Like we were maxed out. So we used half the capital probably to build out our next brewery, which we had already found the space and identified the equipment we needed. We just needed, you know, to write the checks and, um, and then the other half to hire four or five key people. And I mean, that was like game changing guy. Cause like, yeah, it's game changing. And as you kind of did this, got, get this investment, you also land a deal, a distribution deal to get into uh, into Gelson's and then, which is a, a chain in in LA, mainly around LA, and then also other places in the West Coast, um, and we have a sense of how important distribution is, right? Because you need to get in with a distributor, otherwise, you yourself have to go door to door to door to door, and it's impossible really to to scale your product. You need it everywhere, and only a distributor can kind of help you do that, right? Yeah. But then the catch-22 is the distributor won't usually take you on unless you have some stores. Right. Like, they don't want to build you from scratch. Right. So they want to know, oh, you've got Gelson's on board? Okay, we'll take you on. Got it. So this distributor is called Nature's Best that you signed. Yeah. And was that, was that just a huge turning point for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a huge – it was the next phase, right? So now we're, like, moving away from the majority of our business being from farmer's markets – and, and home deliveries to, okay, now we're talking about huge orders. Yeah. So more stores are willing to accept us and, and we're very focused on growth, aligned with our investors at this time on just like, let's grow, let's grow this. Was it hard for you to, I mean, I can't even imagine how hard it would be to all of a sudden go from just you and your husband, your best friend to a company of even 10, 15, 20 people and you got to be the leader and the boss and there's HR issues and like, it's, it's got to be overwhelming. Yeah. And then there's the capital piece. Like we got that money. We thought that money was going to last us. I remember when we got the two million bucks, it was like, oh my gosh, we're good. Like, let's build this now, baby. And then it was like gone a year later. Um, wow. and, and it's not that we were reckless at all. It's just the capital for growth is really intense and immense. And so we were already having discussions a year later of doing this again. And that's that's a lot of pressure and responsibility when I'm also the one that's still picking up the broom. I mean, so many pressures and responsibilities and growth. It's almost hard to pinpoint why you're you're building something. So proving it, proving that you can do it. I mean, so many times I think the biggest fear was not living up to that. So, I mean, almost everything requires discomfort and push. It's, 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 in times of growth, like, it's probably the hardest times. Can I ask you about having a business with your husband? I mean, sure. it's, it's you, your husband, your best friend. And, God, that could spell recipe for disaster in many instances, right? Because it could be two of the people are in a family and one person isn't and there could be tension and also the tension with with the two partners who are married and uh how do you guys manage that there's no way there isn't tension between at least you and, and Justin or, or or you and Vanessa or Justin oh, and yeah. Vanessa and, and that's that's really where the tension is me and Justin it's not it doesn't really sit for me and Vanessa um i don't know exactly how to explain why uh, part of it is that Vanessa and i are are wired very similarly so mm. I think we just really operate from the same space. I I think that's a part of it. I think another part of it is we don't live together. So 
I think that separation time. And then also the other thing that makes it challenging for Justin and I is we're very different. Hmm. Like he and I are in some ways opposite. You know, he's the operations guy. He's the one that, you know, wants to dot the I's, cross the T's, make sure everything is operationally sound and like structured and processed and system oriented, which obviously we need. But I am a very different type of force. I am yeah. I am the dreamer. I'm the one that like, you know, doesn't think about that stuff. And so it calls for quite a bit of conflict between the two of us at work. And I actually invite that. I'm very comfortable with that level of conflict. Hmm. In the end, we end up having a very solid dream, I guess you could say, or executable dream. But you just don't really want to have sex with that person that night. <laughs> <laughs> um, I might cut that part out. I got gotcha. you. I hear you. You know what I'm saying, though. I mean, it's yeah. it's tough to come home, and then and then you have this other relationship to tend to, which is a much more personal one, and it's just it's hard to transition, especially yeah. with children. There's no break. It's not like you can go to your yoga class and then come back and be like, okay, now we're husband wife. So you know, we just have had to work through that, and we have. So so Dinah, I mean, this brand, right? Health Aid that. I mean, that you started by fermenting kombucha in your closet. I mean, today, I mean, you're looking at hundreds of millions of dollars in annual retail sales. And I think I think you guys have raised almost $50 million total or something like yeah. that. It, I mean, is yeah. that about right? Yeah. And last July of 2019, you got $20 million from Coke, um, yeah. which isn't just $20 million investment. That's like the backing of Coca-Cola, the biggest beverage company in the world. Um, Huge milestone. Do you feel now like you can take a breather? Like you're like, ah, okay, we're going to be fine. Like I can, I've been grinding away since, you know, 2012 on this. And now I'm like, okay. Um, I, I kind of got to say no. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> All right. Fine. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, no, it feels, I, I will, I, I will say for sure it was a huge milestone. I was extremely proud and am extremely proud that we've been able to build something literally from nothing from that table to something that the biggest beverage company in the world would want to invest at this level. Like, yeah, I mean, it's awesome. But the keep going part didn't die down. Now, I will say over the journey, regardless of that investment, over the journey, I've been able to, you know, pay myself more than $10 an hour like we did at the beginning and, and sort of... I, I feel now I'm I'm at a point where I feel fairly paid, and that and that's yeah. allowed for me to at least go on vacations yeah. and because you have a board so, that that approves your your pay. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. I still have to fight for it though. Yeah, and, and this is the thing. I remember we talked to Andy Dunn of Bonobos about this because a lot of people assume you get all this investment and all of a sudden you're loaded. Oh. You're just swimming in cash. But it actually, the more outside investment you get, the less equity you have in the business, and really. Most entrepreneurs, until or if they sell their their shares in the business, their equity, they're dependent on a salary that is determined by a board. And that could be a perfectly fair salary, but it's not going to make you filthy rich. Dude, one of the funniest emails we got was after we got that first money. I just I got an email and it was yeah. like, you know, for your um, for your charter flight needs, you know, think of executive charter. <laughs> oh, from a company that was like, oh, this person's rich. Now they're going to need charter Flying, flights. Flying, pra- like, pra- <laughs> Justin and Vanessa and I were like, oh, and I wrote back. I was like, we're still flying, coach. You know, like this is, and still we are. Here's here's a tricky question for you. We've had people like Gary Erickson of Cliff Bar who own his, he owns his company. He was almost going to sell to investors and 
sell to a big uh, than a big company, and he didn't. Um, we've had you know Sarah Kaus of Swell. She owns a hundred percent of her company. Um, some people say they couldn't have done what they did without outside capital. That it would be it would have been impossible to scale their business. And some people say I wish I didn't do it. And other people say, had I done it, we would have grown faster earlier. There are all kinds of different views on this. But there's no question that when you bring in outside capital, you do lose control, right? There are going to be people who have opinions and, and they're going to assert those opinions. If you would have done it again, would you have avoided outside investors? No. No. So much of the choice you have is, is yes, there's experience, but it's also what's the context of the situation? I mean, we yeah. couldn't get a loan if we needed it. I mean, we were totally no out of cash. We ha- it really felt like we had no choice. So I know if I was back in that position – I really still would have no choice. But to be honest, they helped us a lot in the beginning. Yeah. They, they helped us build forecasts and, and get into the right distribution. And so honestly, I think we did exactly right. Yeah. And I would say that to all those people, if you have access to capital outside of private equity, great, go for it. But yeah. um, there's not only one way to do it. Um, when you uh, When you think about where you are right now and – where you've come from, how you know how far you've come in pretty short time. I mean, it's I'm sure it seems like a long time. I'm sure it seems like forever and ever. I know. But in the grand scheme of things, it's pretty quick, right? I mean, you yeah. you've become a pretty big company quickly. How much do you think that has to do with just the grind and your hard work and and how much because you got lucky? Okay, it's definitely not zero luck. The initial number that came up was twenty percent luck. That's what I wanted to say. I would say it's eighty percent grit. Um, there's definitely moments of blessings, you know, that ride along with Vanessa. Health Aid would not be where it is without Vanessa. That is a blessing. You know, the phone call from the farmer's market, um, just when we needed investment, the guy that chose to buy a Health Aid and called us and said we wanted investment. I mean, those types of things are yeah. are hard to explain. And there's and there's more of that. But even in those all those examples, you get a card dealt to you. It's not the whole deck. You get a card. You still have to do something with that card. You have to take it and run with it. And without that grit, that card's just a card and it flies away. So yeah, I I would say it's 80% hard work, 80% pushing through and just like doing it when no one else would. That's Dinah Trout, co-founder and CEO of HealthAid Kombucha. According to the company, in 2020, HealthAid is on track to hit $200 million in revenue. That works out to selling one bottle of kombucha every single second. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also write to us at hibt at npr.org. And if you want to send a tweet, it's at how I built this or at Guy Raz. And my Instagram is at guy.raz. Our show was produced this week by Casey Herman with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. Thanks also to Julia Carney, Candice Lim, Neva Grant, Sarah Saracen, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Farah Safari. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR. 
With the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the president is hoping to fill the seat with a conservative judge. And evangelicals who play an important part in American politics have been waiting for this moment. But how did evangelicals become such a powerful force? Listen now to the history of evangelicals on the Throughline podcast from NPR.